John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah For his soul is marching on Welcome to War of the Rebellion Stories of the Civil War I am your host, Leon And this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross and Tetum Tappamanix, the Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861 to 1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the rank and file. And stick around to the end of this episode's reading because I've got some exciting news for you all. However, that will have to wait to the end because this is episode 32. Part 3 of Chapter 15, Hatcher's Run, Weldon Railroad Raid. Further Incidents of Life in the Trenches The whole region between the lines of the contending armies during the Siege of Petersburg was so cut up by covered ways, dugout roads, rifle pits, etc., as to make it almost impossible to pass safely without losing one's way from the main lines to the picket posts when the fog was heavy. In winter and early spring, this marshy country, drained by Hatcher's Run and Gravelly Run, was subject to frequent fogs so dense in character that frequently from daybreak until ten o'clock, a soldier wandering a few rods from this camp would be unable to find his way back to the same. On one occasion... During this winter campaign, Sergeant Walter McCabe of Company B of the 155th, in command of a large squad of pickets, started out in the morning to relieve the Union pickets already on duty. After wandering for some time, in what seemed to be the direction of the Union picket line, the sergeant and his squad were brought to a sudden halt and challenged to give an account of themselves. To the great consternation of the squad of the 155th, they found themselves prisoners within the Confederate lines. On being lined up, the Confederates promptly relieved them of nearly all of their clothing and all of their valuables. One of the enemy would exclaim, quote, Say, Yank, that's a nice overcoat, let's exchange, unquote. And another would exclaim, quote, Off with your shoes, Yank, I'll exchange with you, unquote. A mercenary Confederate would ask, quote, have you any money? Out with it. You'll not need it where you're going. I'll take care of it for you. Unquote. Others insisting on trading shoes, quote, even up. Unquote. The unfortunate Yankee giving a compulsory consent. When the exchanges were all completed, the scene presented the appearance of a Confederate company dressed in neat Zouave uniforms guarding a company of Union soldiers, dressed in ragged, tattered Confederate clothing their heads sticking out through crownless hats, bare spots showing through rents and trousers, especially in the rear, together with soulless shoes, etc. 
As the Confederate cavalcade started to march with their Union prisoners for the rear of the Confederate troops, they in turn became confused by the thick fog, and striking a covered way, unconsciously marched their prisoners right back into the Union lines. In turn, the late captors were captured. It is needless to add that the fortunes of war having changed, the Confederates were made to disgorge their plunder in short order, and Sergeant McCabe's squad promptly came into their own again without much ceremony. Whether it was Major General G.K. Warren's high reputation as a skillful engineer, or his eminence as a brilliant strategist and fighter, and great coolness in cases of emergency, that led to his being selected by General Grant to lead all important and hazardous movements looking to complete the isolation of Lee's army within the defenses of Petersburg, is a problem the readers of this volume will each have to solve. Be the cause, or causes what they may, however, the facts stand out so plain that he who runs may read. Every fresh advance into the enemy's strongholds by General Warren's corps involved the greatest dangers and necessitated not only courageous fighting qualities on the part of his troops, but the ability to perform very hard manual labor. Every new position gained had to be fortified. Every entrenchment captured from the enemy had to be remodeled so as to make it a defensive position for the Union troops. Thus, during the entire summer and autumn of 1864, as well as the greater part of the winter of the Petersburg Campaign, the 155th Regiment was constantly engaged either in fighting or through details of men digging and shoveling in the trenches. Immediately, upon securing a firm grasp of an important position, General Warren sent his troops to work to fortify the same. As soon as the new works were made impregnable against the enemy's assaults, some other corps of the Army of the Potomac would march in to occupy the position, and the 5th Corps, under General Warren, would march out to make new conquests and fortify again. This order of campaigning ended only at Appomattox, that General Warren fully appreciated the hardships to which his brave, uncomplaining troops were subjected goes without saying. The details from the 155th who toiled in the trenches all bear willing testimony to the kindness and sympathy shown them by the kind-hearted general, who often personally superintended their work. Frequently, when some youthful soldier, who from his tender nurture and surroundings at home had never handled a shovel before, would evince awkwardness and the use of the same, General Warren would get down into the ditch, grasp the tool, and kindly show the novice how to use it to advantage. During the siege of Petersburg, General Meade received complaints that in many cases the enlisted men failed to extend the military salute to their superior officers, thus neglecting to show proper respect to their military superiors. In response to these complaints, General Meade issued a general order directing that thereafter all soldiers in the ranks should, in accordance with military regulation, salute their superior officers anywhere when meeting or passing them. On receiving this order, General Warren immediately requested General Meade to accept from the provisions of the order the hard-worked troops of the Fifth Corps, then engaged toiling in the mud and water of the trenches and fatigue details day and night. General Meade thereupon qualified the general order, making it apply only to, quote, soldiers off duty, unquote, in camps or on guard duty 
dress parades, or on distinctly military occasions, and not to include working details of soldiers engaged in constructing defensive works. Topography of Petersburg District To the general reader, the description of the various movements of the 155th and of the battles fought by the 5th Corps under General G.K. Warren must be unintelligible without a clear understanding of the topography of the region in which those events occurred. Running south and southwest from Petersburg were several wagon roads and two railroads, which formed the main arteries of communication between Petersburg and Richmond and the southern states of the Confederacy, and over which were conveyed the principal supplies for Lee's army. The possession of these roads by the Union Army, of course, meant the speedy surrender or evacuation of the capital and strongholds of the Confederacy. The first important road of which the Union Army obtained possession west of the Norfolk and Petersburg was the Jerusalem Plank Road, running almost due south, which was followed, a few weeks later, by the capture of the Weldon Railroad, running south, into North Carolina, and the Halifax Wagon Road, running south, parallel with this railroad. The only remaining railroad by which Lee's army could obtain supplies was what was known as the South Side Railroad, running in a southwesterly direction from Petersburg. The vital importance of this railroad to the Confederate capital led General Lee to make use of every means at his command, even to the utmost to protect it from capture. Before reaching the Southside Railroad from the Weldon Railroad, it was necessary to cross four important wagon roads running south from Petersburg. First, the Halifax Road. Second, the Vaughan Road. Next, the Boyton Plank Road. And lastly, the White Oak Road. These wagon roads, about ten miles south of Petersburg, crossed first Hatcher's Run, flowing southeast. Second, Gravelly Run, flowing in the same direction, the two streams uniting to form Rwanti Creek. These various roads were connected by numerous narrow country roads crossing from one to the other. The distance from the Yellow Tavern and Four Mile Station on the Weldon Railroad across to the South Side Railroad was about 10 to 12 miles. The capture of Fort McRae and connecting works at Beeble's Farm led by the Fifth Corps reduced the distance to the South Side Railroad to about 6 to 8 miles. The intervening space, however, was so strongly fortified with numerous lines of entrenchments and redoubts, also well manned by Confederate veteran troops that its capture by direct assault was hopeless to the Union generals. With the bulldog tenacity, characteristic of General Grant, he determined to plant his forces on the South Side Railroad by flanking movements, that is, by pushing his troops around the western ends of the enemy's entrenchments and coming in on their rear. This necessitated the movement of the Union troops south several miles, then a march in a westward direction across the country traversed by the country roads and streams already mentioned. The greater part of this region was so thickly covered with forests and intersected and cut up by the deep ravines and impassable marshes. Along the western crest of every ravine, and at the intersection of every crossroad with the main road, the Confederates had constructed surprisingly strong works. Should the Union troops successfully assault one line of defenses, the enemy had only to fall back to a still stronger position in their rear, commanding the first position and rendering it untenable. 
This second position was commanded by a third earthworks still further in the rear. Not satisfied with this series of defensive fortifications behind which they could bid defiance to the Union army, the foe had constructed other earthworks facing to the south, following these up with others in the rear of the first, until the gloomy forests and swamps of that dreary region, ten to fifteen miles square, was cut up by a labyrinth of defensive works, of which the Confederate officers alone held the thread. It was impossible for General Lee, with his rapidly depleting army, to occupy continuously these defenses, but his faithful scouts, always on the alert, kept him fully informed of every threatening movement by the Union troops in that direction, and holding the key to the position, that astute general was able to fill the works with his troops on short notice, and was never caught napping. Entangled in the intricate mazes of the Hatcher's Run forests, the Union troops were constantly in danger of being ambushed and shot down by unseen foes, or cut off from supports and captured by flank movements on the part of the enemy. General Warren and the Fifth Corps To face these dangers, and to undergo the hardships and exposures incident to campaigning in such a region in the dead of winter, the reader will observe that General G.K. Warren, with his Fifth Corps, composed of such troops as the 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers, was invariably selected by General Grant to penetrate the heart of Lee's network and supposed invincible entrenchments during the siege and extensions to the left, and finally to storm the enemy's strong position at Five Forks and plant his faithful troops on the coveted Southside Railroad, capturing at Five Forks more prisoners than he had troops in his command. Inclement Weather On the night of the 6th of February, 1865, to the 13th, the 155th and Griffin's Division suffered extremely from cold and exposure, having left all camp paraphernalia in their former quarters, some soldiers even leaving their blankets, and the weather continuing very inclement, the ground being frozen hard, and was impossible to attain restful sleep. In fifteen minutes after lying down, the part of the body in contact with the frozen earth would become numb with cold, compelling the weary soldier to turn continually from side to side. Huge fires of oak logs were kept burning constantly, but the wind blew all the heat as well as the smoke away from the windward side, while the dense biting wood smoke was blinding and choking on the side to leeward. A more miserable week than that spent by the 155th during the lull following the Dabney's Mill campaign could hardly be imagined. New Winter Quarters, 1865 on the 13th of February, 1865, the camp guards and pickets together with the camp property left behind at the former quarters were restored to the regiment, having, by hard labor, changed the enemy's works which the 155th had captured on the banks of Hatcher's Run into strong Union defenses. The regiment moved out as usual this day, and other troops moved in. The regiment was moved back a mile or more to a forest of yellow pine timber, and ordered to erect new quarters. After another week of toil, comfortable houses were completed, and with the exceptions of regular details for fatigue duty in the trenches, the regiment spent a few pleasant weeks in this camp. The barns and other buildings torn down for the sake of the boards, 
not furnishing sufficient material for the needs of both officers and men, the latter being compelled to procure their share of the same, surreptitiously, by running the gauntlet of guards at night, and carrying off such boards and other material as they needed. Within a few rods of this new winter camp on the 155th, was a fine large tabernacle erected by the Christian Commission, in which undenominational religious services were held nightly through the week and in daytime on Sundays. The soldiers in the field, in this portion of the army, at least, had not heard much about the great work which the Sanitary Commission of the North was doing among the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac. The work of this commission was evidently confined to the hospitals, as there were few visible signs of their presence at the front, but the hearts of the troops were with the brave, self-sacrificing ministers and nurses of the Christian Commission, who were everywhere present ministering to the physical as well as the spiritual needs of the men in the trenches. Close in the rear of the battle line, often amidst the crashing of shells and the smoke of battle, these devoted men carried fuel and water to keep their vessels of hot coffee full and steaming, and with hands tender as a woman's, fed the hungry, staunched the blood, and bound up the gashes made in human flesh by the deadly missiles of the enemy. These priests of God, Catholic and Protestant, asked no questions of the sufferer, but simply obeyed the divine precept to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and bind up the wounds of both friend and foe. Many a wounded confederate owed the Christian commission a debt of everlasting gratitude. Helplessly wounded in the hands of his foes, he was treated with the same tender consideration as if he were a friend and all for Christ's sake. Camp Occupations Drilling Resumed In a few days after the Battle of Hatcher's Run, February 6, 1865, the weather moderated and became mild and pleasant, continuing so for weeks. After the middle of the month, rumors of another move circulated freely among the troops, and when orders were finally received to pack up and send to the rear all superfluous clothing and baggage. The rumor increased to a certainty. General Warren, with the ubiquitous Fifth Corps, had threaded his way among such a network of Confederate entrenchments, successfully assaulting some and flanking others, that he had finally reached the point from which the whistling and rumbling of trains on the Southside Railroad were plainly audible. The war had been ended in the Southwest by the destruction of Hood's Confederate Army at Nashville, Sherman, in his march through the Carolinas, had successfully reached Goldsboro, and the Union forces were in possession of all the seaports and coast cities of the South. Sheridan had cut the canal and destroyed the Lynchburg Railroad northwest and west of Richmond. The Union cavalry were probing the heart of the Confederacy, and wails of despair were filling the air throughout the South. The 155th, expecting every day to be ordered to move, were bracing themselves for the final supreme effort, for the whole command felt that the next move of their trusted corps commander would place them across the Southside Railroad, the only remaining artery conveying blood to the impoverished brain of the Confederacy. Taking advantage of the beautiful weather, daily reviews were held. The 155th Regiment, under command of Brevet Brigadier General A.L. Pearson, was assiduous in its daily practice of deployments skirmish drills, and the useful and graceful bayonet exercises. Every afternoon, on the immense fields in front of the Cummings House, there was a review either by brigades or divisions, and frequently by the entire corps, 
attended occasionally by Generals Grant and Meade and their staffs. At this time, the wife of General Charles Griffin was in camp and accompanied her husband on these reviews. She was a handsome woman, a superb rider, and rode a beautiful horse. At this time, the 155th was at the zenith of its reputation in the 5th Corps as one of the attractive regiments. Gaily dressed in its pleasing dark blue zouave uniform, white turbans, leggings, and white gaiters, moving as one man with a light free step, whether in company, regimental, or division line, swaying in beautiful cadence to inspiring martial music, the regiment presented an impressive picture. All these scenes were long to be remembered, and did much to prepare the regiment for its crowning career in the battles yet to come, culminating in the final victory at Appomattox Courthouse. Second Battle of Hatcher's Run On the morning of the 25th of March, while the country was covered with a fog so dense that the rays of the morning sun were too weak to penetrate, terrific cannonading was heard to the right, coming from the direction of Petersburg. Bartlett's brigade, including the 155th, was ordered to break camp and march, leaving their comfortable quarters. The 155th Regiment marched amid the fog two or three miles to the right in direction of the cannonading, eating a breakfast of hardtack as they marched. Halting, the 155th remained in one spot two or three hours, watching with great interest the hazy movements of a division of the 2nd Corps, maneuvering in their front and left. Having learned in the meantime that the heavy cannonading in the early morning was caused by a Confederate attack on Fort Stedman and final repulse of the enemy. About noon, the Union troops half a mile in front and to the left of the position, occupied by the 155th, became engaged with the enemy. The fog had lifted and disappeared, and the sun shone bright and clear, warming the chilly air of early spring. The buds were swelling, ready to burst. There was a balmy sweetness in the air, beauty in the landscape, but no birds. Instinctively, the feathered tribe had deserted those regions when the terrible tempests of human wrath converted the once peaceful hills and valleys into scenes of tumult and horror. Soon, the brazen-throated engines of war, with ear-splitting detonations, began to fill the air with missiles of destruction. The musketry firing increased to a continuous roar, again subsidizing to sounds resembling the ripping of canvas or the rattling of a stick over a paling fence. The firing increased and subsided continually, and as the battle extended the contending hosts became enveloped in the smoke and lost to view. Awestricken, the 155th gazed upon the sublime scene transpiring within a landscape which the deepest hues of the painter were powerless to portray, or words the winged messengers of thought to describe. About an hour before sunset, the 155th and other regiments under General Bartlett, marching in the direction of the heaviest firing, formed in lines of battle in the rear of the troops on the firing line, which they ascertained to be the famous Irish Brigade of the Second Corps, and advancing to the front, relieved them. The heavy volleys poured into the enemy's line by the 155th seemed for a time to stimulate their fire and in a very short measure of time, many of the regiment fell killed or wounded. Lieutenant Colonel John Ewing was wounded in the leg, and Major John A. Klein, who had lately been promoted from captain of Company K, received a mini-ball in the shoulder, but declined to leave the field. The regiment lost two killed and about thirty wounded. The fire of the enemy was very severe. 
particularly for the two right companies, A and F. The slope of the ground somewhat protected the left companies. It was growing dark, and the flash of the enemy's fire was very conspicuous. Above the roar of musketry came a voice, quote, Fire right oblique, unquote. It may have been the voice of a private, or a sergeant, or a captain, but the inspiration was taken up by many voices, and that oblique fire was concentrated with such murderous effect that the fire of the enemy slackened and finally ceased. The 155th maintained its position until the enemy gave up the contest and retreated behind their breastworks about nine o'clock. In front of the 155th, during this battle, lay many dead soldiers and some members of the regiment whose guns were becoming well-worn. Taking advantage of the opportunity presented, went out in the darkness and exchanged guns with the dead men, securing bright new arms in place of their own worn and rust-eaten weapons. In history, this engagement is known as the Second Battle of Hatcher's Run. By midnight, the regiment was back in the old camp which it had left in the morning. For two days, the 155th, to employ a military term, slept on their arms. That is, their guns were stacked in the company streets, their knapsacks were packed, and a constant supply of four days' rations were kept in their haversacks, so that the regiment, had occasion required it, could have been on the march within five minutes after receiving orders to move. Chapter 16 Five Forks Appomattox is what we'll be covering next week. Oh, we finally made it. Oh my goodness. It seems like it's been forever. It was what, episode 32? All right, before we do the show notes and points of interest, here's my wonderful news to share with you all. It's that War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Savoir, now has a Facebook page and a Twitter account. And I have linked every single episode to both so that you can listen from either, as well as a lot of other content made by others or myself that I've already previously shared. And I did this because I was actually getting a lot of bots on my website. So here's how it's going to work. If you want to discuss the episodes, we do that on Twitter or Facebook. But if you want to see the pictures, you come to the website. <laughs> I just, I'm not getting rid of my website. So that's where I'm just going to put the pictures and everything else. And also, if you go to my website, it has just the player, right? So you can listen to all of the episodes right then and there, too. So I've got a ton of places. So this episode's going to be out a little early, and then the Patreon episode's going to come out on Saturday, but I think I'm still just going to make that free again for everyone to listen to. So it should be almost an hour of podcast book recordings, plus my own thoughts. It's going to come after this and the additional links that I'm going to give you. And then also two more videos I uploaded onto the War of the Rebellion YouTube channel. And I think that's more than enough to keep you guys busy all weekend. And the two videos that I uploaded are ones that I read and made myself. They're both from the, commanding, the original commanding officer, Colonel Edward J. Allen, of the 155th. And the first one is titled... Interesting story of Colonel Edward J. Allen and his, and his Indian password, which is from a newspaper that's been saved and was written in by his son, although he was still alive at the time. 
And the second is Civil War Prose on Slavery, which is unaltered and has no intro or outro and comes straight from his own writings, which Colonel Allen explains why the men fought for the Union and the cause of the war, and it is beautifully done. was really happy that I got to read it finally and kind of commit it to uh, recording. So please check it out. You can like and subscribe and share to your heart's content because now I'm on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and I've made it super easy to do now and I've expanded into more podcasting apps. So if you go onto the Facebook page, which once again, if you go to my website under this title, part three of the Weldon Railroad Raid is going to be every link to everything so that you can just go and check it out. And of course, I've cross posted on all of the other different places. So, all right, let's get to some show notes. Let's talk about those union boys getting stripped down and forced to put on the bedraggled, ruined uniforms of the Confederates only for things to turn around and then having to put their old uniforms on. That's hilarious. And for as long as they had these regimental get-togethers, I bet that the people who were involved in that just got ragged on endlessly. Because that's that's so funny. But scary, but also funny. And also, this is the second time that Governor K. Warren, they have talked about him showing troops how to use a shovel. And that's really cute. I like that. And Union troops not wanting to salute officers in the trenches probably has to do a lot with not wanting to get shot every time they moved and having to constantly salute people all the time probably puts a damper on that when you're stuck in a trench all day. And let's see. Oh gosh. Them talking about when, after they built their camp and the troops sneaking out to go steal stuff. It's a time honored tradition in the military and modern day officers and senior NCOs. You don't fool me because half the time you're the one ordering us to do it. So I, uh, I always find that entertaining <laughs> to look back on and be like, yep, nothing's changed. Like, for example, Marines do not steal from the government or from the Marine Corps, but from each other or other branches. Well, it's a little bit of a gray area. And oh, what a great quote, the impoverished brain of the Confederacy. I want to talk about that for a moment because Every time the 155th goes foraging out in Confederate country, what do they get? Chickens, pigs, cornmeal, grain, all sorts of stuff. You know who's not getting that? Confederate troops. Talk about a supply issue. The food is there, but their troops are not getting it. Talk about a huge supply problem going on. And they did talk about doing... The reviews in front of the Cummings house. Well, I've got a link for that. It's from the Peter, the Petersburg project, which is someone we've already checked out before. And I'm going to put that on my website filed under, uh, this as well, the same post on my website. And I'll probably also link it on Facebook. It's got general Griffin posing in front of it. So it puts us right in the exact spot where the authors were talking about. It's really cool. And speaking of those reviews, we're talking about a regiment that's on top of their soldiering game, right? These are peak kings right here, especially with how hard they had to work to get their Zouave uniforms, how hard they've been training, how hard they've been fighting. 
I just love that for them. And I also know that feeling where you just feel like you could conquer the world and you're not afraid of anybody. You just got a certain kind of strut that comes along with it. It's really hard to describe, but I know exactly what they're talking about. And a lot of veterans out there also know what I'm talking about. And also what it feels like to come back to society and not have that feeling anymore and just become like an everyday person. It's, it's a stark contrast. All right. And the second battle of Hatcher's run, I think today we just call that the battle of Fort Stedman. And I've already gone ahead and put another video from Battlefield Trust there for you guys to see. I think I already linked it beforehand, but I'm going to do it again. It talks about the battle of Stedman or Fort Stedman. But I will see you in the next video. Have a great weekend. I hope you all enjoy the content that I've got. Remember, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, my website. Come check them all out. They're all going to be linked on my website and cross-referenced on each other. So regardless of which one you visit, you'll be able to find the others. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps, his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Hallelujah, or his soul is marching on. John Brown was a hero, undaunted, true, and brave. And Kansas knew his valor when he fought her rights to save. And now, though the grass grows green above his grave, his soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. For his soul. He captured Harper's Ferry with his 19 men so few And frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through They hung him for a traitor, themselves a traitorous crew But a soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah For his soul is marching on John Brown was John the Baptist of the Christ we are to see Christ who of the bondmen shall the liberator be And soon throughout the sunny south the slaves shall all be free For his soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah 
Marching on, for his soul is marching. 